Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Uh, Can we just take a moment to reflect on the dynamic worship experience that we just had again? Can we just... Give the worship team some love. You know, you never want to take things for granted. And there's something special for me, because I don't get this Monday through Saturday, right? Like, you know, even if I have my playlist going on and I try to get into worship, but there's something dynamic when you're in the room, right? And and you're hearing that and you guys do it with such excellence. Um, So thank you. And it's good to worship. Amen. Is really good. It, it has this way of taking you to a place that you maybe have forgotten about that you needed to be in, but it, but it kind of brings you there. But if I could be honest with you today, sometimes it's hard to worship. And I don't even just mean when you're in the room. I mean, it's actually hard to get yourself to the room. I think especially uh, when you're not used to it and we're kind of in this unique season of, you know, just trying to get back into rhythms that we once had but aren't, that, you know, but lost. And, and can I just be honest? Pastors aren't immune to that. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I had a couple weeks of vacation, and I was like, man, this is kind of tough just to get back to church, and I'm preaching. So I can only imagine what the other people are saying. <laughs> I'm just going to be real with y'all. So hopefully you just, you know. But it's not just hard, just the physical act of going, but also because of the context of where we find ourselves in, or I would say at least that I find myself in. You see, even though it's dope to experience those who are in the room to to get the comments and, and see people are tracking with us online, I can't help but thinking about some of the people that aren't. And I don't just mean like have chosen to stay home because of, you know, various scenarios related to social distancing. I mean like folks who left the faith, like who I can remember being walking with and then at some point something happened and they chose to go in a different path. And, and it's hard to describe the internal angst that that creates and even uncertainty. You can kind of be like, well, man, am I, am I good? Am I believing the right thing? Because they left. But it's not just even people leaving. Also, when you see some of the drama that unfolds around this institution called the church, in America in particular, can't tell you how much time and energy I've spent. You know, we had this incredible moment, you know, when birthing Pray March Act uh, under the visionary leadership of Pastor James after the, the murder of George Floyd. And it seemed to be this, this moment we were in as a society to really, you know, examine and, and, and really kind of dismantle systems of racism. And then all of a sudden this move comes to change the subject as the main issue in America isn't so much racism, it is critical race theory. And I've spent hours unpacking that and, 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 and interacting and, and, and trying to navigate through that with people who I love and who I've trusted in before. And it's just like, why are we focusing on the wrong things? And I'm not even just talking about people out there. Can, can I be real and talk about us in here? 
Sometimes it's tough when you're serving and <laughs> word gets back to you, you're not doing enough. And you're giving your best, you're trying your best, but that best isn't some, to, up to someone's standard. And you can kind of just feel like, you know, why am I even bothering? I mean, I'm doing what I could do. Every day it can seem like another discouraging headline. Every day it can seem like something else and you can just feel tired and just say, you know, I'm good. I can just Netflix and chill this morning. And when I feel like I'm hanging on by a thread personally, and I talk to the Lord, and he reminds me that in times like this, you have one or two options. You can be conformed or be transformed. That's, that's really what you, at the end of the day, how you respond in the midst of this type of pressure really relates to this, this fork in the road of which way am I going to go. And he also reminds me, and this is where context is so important, that we're not the only believers to have ever experienced a sense of crisis within our own society, a crisis that is just even in medical issues and pandemics or relationship issues. In fact, the Bible is literally filled with circumstances and situations of people who are in the exact same boat as us. Well, actually, that's actually selling them short. <laughs> Their boat was a lot more rocky and a lot more challenging than this one. For real, like, like for example, I go back in one of the, the, the most tragic but also compelling uh, spots in the Bible for me in the Old Testament has to do with the, the period of the exile. Now, what that was was essentially so, you know, God reveals himself to Moses. I'm going to make, you know, uh, you a father of many nations. I'm going to make a people of you. Go to the promised land. He goes. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes. Yeah, we're in the promised land. King David, everything is hot. Solomon, oh, the sequel was even better. And then it collapses because of their own sin. Like the people who had been delivered from slavery and bondage in Egypt are now judged for actually oppressing their own people. And the judgment is, well, now you can't represent my name anymore because I can't put my name on this oppression. <laughs> like, like that, I'm going to disassociate from this. And so he sends them into exile. And in exile, what that means is a foreign nation, Babylon, comes to Jerusalem, destroys its walls, kills some, and sends others into slavery, essentially, in a foreign land. They have to walk about 200 or so miles just to get there, to go and serve as slaves for generations. And could you imagine, like, what that might do to your faith, to your quiet time? They'd be like, we were the people God said that he was going to allow us to be here, and now we're no longer here. We're in this other land, and they're giving us names, and they're making us eat foods that we're not supposed to eat, and they're trying to tell us to worship gods that we shouldn't worship under penalty of either ostracization or even death. That would be kind of tough. And yet God had a word for them, and they persevered. And then I think about the New Testament. And the New Testament is funny because we think of the church as an institution. Well, there was a time when the church was 12 dudes and some women that was around them. Like, it was really small. And, and on top of that, the birthing of it, get this, they crucified Jesus, right? Like, they actually kill him. 
He resurrects, but imagine the uncertainty you would feel about walking down the street. Hey, aren't you one of the people that was with the guy that we just assassinated? That might put you in a little bit of discomfort, a little bit at odds. But in fact, some of the words that we use that we just kind of banty about, like they're just, we think of them as Christian words, are actually appropriated words from another context. For example, when we say the word gospel, Good news, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Well, gospel was initially, originally a term that would talk about the, the news of Caesar, of Rome, coming and basically giving the status reports of how they were conquering other lands. That was the good news of how this king was coming into a land and conquering it. And so Paul comes in and says, actually, don't get it twisted. The real good news is the fact that the conquering king of Judah is the one that has conquered the world through his own death and resurrection. That's the gospel. What about, you know, we say like Jesus is Lord. Well, that was also a remix of the fact that they would literally in their political practices, it was all intermixed because Caesar claimed to be divine, that they would say Caesar is Lord. So saying Jesus is Lord was an actual rebuke and a confrontation of a political system to say, no, you're corrupt. This is the real God. And that's, I mean, we could look at that and go, that sounds dope, but that doesn't make for great dinner party conversation among those who still <laughs> consider Caesar to be Lord. And so when I think about these tough times and the fact that it's actually revealed in the scripture, it's like, what, are we going to be conformed or transformed? And in particular, when Paul was writing to the church of Rome, now Rome was the New York City of its day. It was the place that was jumping. It was the metropolitan place. It was the place where ideas were bantied about, right? Philosophers were walked the streets, and, and it was considered the epicenter of human civilization. It really wasn't, but that's what they told themselves. And in the midst of that, Paul is writing to this group of believers, right, who are completely outnumbered, completely just marginalized in this bigger context. And he writes and tries to, in the middle of a crisis that they're experiencing, a feeling this alienation, writes what is considered to be his magnum opus, his, his, his most classic treatise, a, the, the most thorough, dynamic explanation of Christianity that you could probably possibly find in the Bible in the book of Romans, but it's in this context that he writes it. And that's where we're going to find ourselves really three-fourths into this treatise. We're going to focus on just a few verses in chapter 12, and, and, he, and it reads, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul makes this appeal, and if you look at just that first verse again, the first part of it, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Well, we kind of catch him mid-thought, right? Because therefore is a, is, a, is a connecting phrase that we have to kind of see what the therefore is there for. 
Thank you. Yeah. So, so it would be it would be a mistake to just jump into this thought as if the previous and, and really this verse is connecting everything that he said in the first eleven chapters. And you might hear this phrase called the Roman road before that, that, that usually describes this place of looking at a few different verses throughout the book of Romans to uh, explain the plan of salvation. But uh, y'all mind if I take y'all through a Romans road that's a little bit more dense and deep than that? Can, can I do that real quick? Okay, I'm going to do it anyway. I just would like to, you know, see if y'all are paying attention. But this is what the therefore is there for. So in Romans chapter 1, we see Paul begin to explain his purpose for writing. We see in uh, Romans 1.16, some people may remember that phrase from, you know, a group. But it's, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And he starts off saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he be ashamed? Because he's writing to a group of people who have another gospel, as we just explained. And on top of that, not only are they getting shade thrown at them from Rome, but also from those who would consider themselves religious, even among those who would consider themselves Jewish, and saying, yo, this is not like what we're supposed to, this isn't the faith. So then what Paul begins to do from there, he's not, he's not ashamed, but then he also explains how the wrath of God or God's judgment has been poured out on humanity because we suppress the truth. Someone say suppress the truth. It's a very dynamic phrase. What Paul is basically saying is that God is right in judging us and has rendered a verdict of guilty because not only, it's not like we don't know, like, but deep down inside, we know we do wrong. We kind of cover it up with our own justifications and do it anyway. He says that we exchange the truth of God for a lie and now begin to worship something. I mean, we saw this in the Exodus story. Literally, days after God split a Red Sea and did 10 miracles, they make a calf in gold and say, thank you who delivered us from Egypt. And as we look at that and go, yo, they crazy. God is saying we do the same thing. Whenever we worship our careers instead of him, whenever we worship other people as celebrities instead of him, we even got a show, American Idol, we worship. And so he says in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So now he throws shade at those who would want to consider themselves religious and have the law. And he says, you're no better than the ones I was talking about in chapter one because you have the law and you don't do it. Then he starts to break it down. You who says you shouldn't lie, do you lie? All you need is to be a parent for like, or just watch kids for a day and they'll expose the stuff that, like, you, like, that you give yourself a pass on. <laughs> I'll keep it moving. So he says, but, but the Paul's point isn't to just condemn them, but he says his point is to go in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He says God saw the dilemma. He saw that he's morally pure, that we sin, but that, and that created a tension, but he, but he had compassion on us, and so he gave us a way out, and he showed us mercy. How? He made the solution for how we would be made right with him, not based on our resume, because that would fail, but based on faith. And so he says it's based on faith, and that it's always been faith based on faith, and faith in the fact that God is able and just and kind enough to save us even though we don't deserve it. So then in chapter 5, we get another one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He says, we've been justified by faith. That's the blessing, that we have peace with God. We know where we can stand, not because of anything that we did, but because of what he did. But then there's still a problem. We still struggle with sin. We still have two natures in us. So then Paul takes chapter 6 and chapter 7 to explain the fact that, yo, I know you're saying to yourself, but wait a minute, even though I made this profession of faith, I still mess up and I still fall short. How is that possible that I'm saved and, and delivered before God, but yet I still sin? And then he goes and talks about a wretched man that's within me, like who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he goes on and explains it and says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who we're in Christ Jesus because God has already rectified us because he basically lived a perfect life that we could not live and then he gave us his righteousness that's a blessing that's something to celebrate on yeah no condemnation that's dope, but we still in chapter 8. What about 9 and 11? Then he goes and takes his sidebar to explain how all these things that he's been talking about to a predominantly Gentile fellowship still uh, connects to the Jews, and God still hasn't forgotten his initial plan to Abraham, even though it's looking like most of them don't believe at the moment. Wait a minute, there's more. God is going to deal and give them another way of connecting with him as well. Isn't that amazing? God has a plan for both those who he saved uh, outside of the Jewish community, those who he saved inside of the Jewish community. He has a plan for us. When we fall short of his glory, he made it by faith. And as a result of that, in verse 1 in chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, in view of God's mercies. Are we caught up? What he's saying, thank you, because I'm a little out of breath, so I can use him. But see, what, the reason why this is so important and so critical is we, can't, we sometimes don't see God's mercy. He says, in, 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 I appeal to you, therefore, why? In view of God's mercy. We, in order to see our way through these hardships, we must see God's mercy. Do you see God's mercy in your life? Sometimes it's hard for us to just wake up out of bed and see it, which is why he reminds them throughout those first 11 chapters. When I think about my own life, I just start to replay the tape of how I've fallen short, how I messed up, how I wasn't trying to think about God, how I was making up my own rules and falling short of those rules. And then I think, wow, God's mercy. And this is the key point If I see God's mercy for what it is, then it's not going to be hard for me to do the first part that he says in the second part of the verse. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Thank you. Someone say living sacrifice. Living sacrifice. Mm. That's rich. <clears throat> Because when you think about a sacrifice, right, like the idea of sacrificing to a deity in, the, in that day was not a foreign concept. The Gentiles on a regular basis, in fact, in the book of Romans, in chapter 14 in Corinthians, Paul deals with this aspect of should we eat food that was sacrificed to idols? Because it was all around them, these people who worship various deities, Zeus, the people that we look at and we just kind of think of as like comic books, they took seriously. Like these are people that they worship. And... So this aspect of sacrifice was very familiar to the Gentiles, and of course it was familiar to the Jews because of the entire sacrificial system, right? Bringing a lamb for Yom Kippur, slaying the lamb on the altar, they were very familiar. 
And to this day, I think we still, at the very base of most of religious belief or practice, I would say, is some level of sacrifice. Even if it's not necessarily animal, some level of what I should do in order to appease something, even if it's just the universe or my sign. But what I would say is that even beyond those explicitly spiritual dynamics, there's also secular sacrifices that happen. See, one of the biggest, I remember that, remember there was a movie, um, uh, Usual Suspects, where he said the greatest trick the devil pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And I thought that was a very interesting insight, and I think the same thing is true in terms of the way that we see worldviews. Most of us think in the way that the world kind of positions it is there are these people over here who kind of live their life based on some belief and some things that, don't, that they don't see. And then there's the rest of us who are reasonable people who just live life. But it's actually a myth. <laughs> because you see, there, you, can't get, you can't get around the fact that how, the choices that I make on a day-to-day basis is based on some take that I have on how the world works and what's actually at point. So even if I think that the world is a cosmic accident that just existed out of nothing and that I am the sole arbiter of choices, good or bad, that happens in my life and that when I die, nothing, that's it. It's just annihilation. That is a worldview. And as a worldview, that's going to create and choose for you how it's going to inform the choices that you make in life. And on top of that, if I live in a society like a um, meritocracy that tells me that my worth is determined by the things that I do, well, guess what? The sacrifice that I'm going to make is by building my career over on top of everything else, including relationships, including family. I'll put that on hold. I'll sacrifice that in order to get ahead. I will do whatever it takes. So there's always sacrifice. There's always a sacrifice. Even if there's not a specific deity that someone's bowing down to, they are figuratively bowing down to some goal and objective that they have. Y'all tracking me with that? But here Paul says, in spite of all of these other things, whether they're secular, whether they're spiritual in some type of way, that this type of sacrifice is different from all the others. Because he said, present yourself as a living sacrifice. You see, sacrifices are made in exchange for something of greater value. That's the whole basis, right? I will sacrifice this lamb in order to God because God is more valuable than a lamb and that's going to appease my sin. I'm going to sacrifice my personal, personal time in order to get ahead in this career because I think that's more valuable. So what he's saying is that the thing that is ultimately the key value to God is you. The lamb ain't, no, that ain't the thing. With your your weekend hobby, you coming to church on Sunday? No, no, no. I want you. But but here's the thing. That's a twist. In spite of all the other sacrifices that are the kind of like the the, the, the ticket, the payment to get in, to to, to get into the favor of the deity or the one that you're sacrificing to, in this case, you're doing the sacrifice because of what he already did for you. In other words... We're saying thank you to the God who paid our way. We're not trying to pay our way. And that's enough for me to give my whole body then thank you and gratitude for the fact that he did it for me. Amen. Amen. That's amazing. I know this is kind of dense. I'm going somewhere. Stay with me. We don't sacrifice to be accepted. We sacrifice because we were already accepted. And that changes the whole situation. That changes the whole situation. But here, there's something else different about this sacrifice. (laughs) When you have something like a lamb, 
you, you, you know, it gets killed and it gets put on the altar and, and it gets burned. It's dead, so it, it's, it's just there. But when you're a living sacrifice, that means you can be like, ooh, you ever know like when the shower gets too hot and you be like, ooh, you know, like, ah, uh, it's a little bit too hot for me and you get off. Living sacrifices can get off the altar. Living sacrifices have to choose every day to stay in a position in which I am sacrificing myself to God. And that's hard. Yeah, that's tough, right? It's not just one decision I made 20 years ago and now that's it. It's a posture in which, not as a way of payment, but as a way of gratitude, I surrender myself and my perspective and I say, I am living. Today is a living sacrifice. But then that begs the question, what parts of our lives are not placed on the altar? Because see, when it's a life, right, it's a living thing. That means all of the things. That means what I think about, what I read, who I spend time with, what I do with that person who I spend time with, where I go, what I say. All of those things fall under the category of that which I am placing as a living sacrifice to this God. Now you see why you got to have a view of God's mercy, right? Because <laughs> that's, that's a big price ticket. But it's not when I look at the full picture of what he's done for me and the fact that I don't even know what to do with this self by myself anyway. I need guidance. We're about to go there. Man, that was verse one. <sighs> I'm telling you, Paul packs a lot in this. So, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. And then he explains what that looks like in verse 2, part A. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Someone say, conformed. Transformed. Conformed. This is the big distinction that he makes. You either can be conformed to this world... Or transform. Now, this command is very profound because he is writing to the church. He is writing to people who he clearly has made clear. He knows or have already made a commitment in a profession of faith who are living in a certain way. And yet he's telling them and commanding them, do not be conformed. You know what that tells me? Is that it's possible for someone to be redeemed but still be conformed to the world. That's the implication. That's why he gives the commandment. Not only is it possible, the fact that it's a negative command suggests that it's probable. This is the natural way of doing things. It's the biggest temptation. Well, what does conform mean? Here's a basic definition. To act in accordance with prevailing standards or customs. <laughs> to act in accordance with prevailing standards or customs. To conform. Whenever I go to a beach, I think about this verse. Do not be conformed to the pattern of the world. Because have you ever noticed that if you are just kind of walking on, along the shore, not trying to necessarily go anywhere in particular, that depending on the tide, if it's an ebb or a flow, you will find yourself deeper in the water than you intended to go. Because there's a pattern of waves that is actually shaping your movement whether you know it or not. You may not even realize it. You just kind of look around and go, how did I get this far? Because you're being conformed without even knowing it. Well, I had the privilege, my wife and I, we celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary this month. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes. We went to St. Croix, beautiful island. And in addition, if it, there was one level of this lesson that I got from just walking on the shore. But while I was there, we had an opportunity to go scuba diving. Well, I should say I had the opportunity. She made it very clear she was not going to participate. Now, it was a two-part process. You had to get like, trained and go through this whole process of how the equipment worked. And then after that, which was like two hours, then we went off the pier and just into water that was about 25, 30 feet deep. It was amazing. I saw sea turtles. Like We just sat on the, the, the bed of the floor watching the sea turtle eat, right, and just come up for air. Saw a fish about three, four feet long. And all of these things were able to happen. I mean, stingrays, you know, seahorses, octopus, everything. It was amazing. It was like an entirely different world that I kind of knew conceptually existed, but I had never been in and seen before. But here's the thing that I also know. That in addition to looking at the different fish and seeing what's going on, that there was literally no way, when you go that far in the, in the water, for you to be able to discern if it's north or south, east or west. Like, you, you, don't, you, you lose all track of direction, right? And here's what that taught me. When we make culture our compass, it conforms our minds. When, when, if I'm in a world, and I'm just in this world, and I can't really, t I don't have any point of direction to tell me what's right or wrong, then I will just gl gladly go wherever it takes me. And I will be shaped, my reality will be shaped by how it tells me to think and to see. And so when Paul says, do not be conformed, he has this in mind, that you are dropped into an aquarium, a whole new world in which is completely different from the world that you're representing, but that it easily can shift you in a direction or not. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Now, transform has a different definition. It means to change in composition or structure or character or condition. Transform says that you have significantly, the word in Greek, metamorpho. Metamorphosis comes from this word, like caterpillar to butterfly, like a complete transformation has occurred. And the fascinating thing is there's only one other time in the, in, in, the, in the New Testament that we see this word referenced to or applied to. This word that he says, be transformed, the first time we see it is in the Gospels in Matthew 17, 2, at the Mount of Transfiguration. It says of Jesus, he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Jesus was on a mountain where he communed with God, and, his, and, and as Moses' face was changed in the Old Testament, his entire body was transformed in such a way that he was blinding light, and it's something that the apostles never forgot. What does that mean? It means when you spend time with God, it ought to transform who you are. It ought to transform how you think. When you, and, and it prepares us to be able to go into the deep places, into the hard places, into the places where it's like, how could I maintain representing a different vantage point and perspective? Because you see, when I was down there, 25 feet deep, can't tell, north and south, there was, and I just got trained like two hours ago, right? Like, I don't have a whole bevy of experience. In fact, I couldn't have gone down there because it wasn't a full certification unless I had a guide. Now, mine was named Sim. And Sim had, does this for a living. He goes down there, he does his thing, and I had never been down to this world before, but Sim had been down there all the time. He knew exactly where to go to take us to see wildlife. But Sim, before we got to that point, he had to teach me how to use the tank. 
He had to teach me how to breathe. He had to teach me how to communicate with him because, you know, you're in the midst of water, so you can't really talk and have a conversation with each other. So there's all these sign language. This means turtle, right? <laughs> That's what they got. This means turtle, right? He was like, this means stingray. And then he said, this is a very important one. And I was like, ooh, what does that mean, Sim? He says, it means that. I'm just telling you to look at something that we don't have a sign for. But here's the thing. This, this was the key com part of it. And he said, this means okay. And every once in a while, I'm going to check in on you to make sure the breathing is working right, that there's not water in your goggles, that you're okay. And I just need you to do this. And that says that you're okay. And because I went with Sim, I was confident going into deep waters that I had never gone into and I would be dead trying to do by myself. Some of y'all see where I'm going with this. You see, we're going into deep waters into the culture. We're going into deep waters into places where it's difficult to find out how do I breathe? How do I even talk? And if I stay connected to Jesus, he transforms my mind so that communicates with me and he keeps going like this. You okay? You okay? But in order for me, well, any of that to make sense, because I got fins on, I got a human will, I could have just sped off in the opposite direction from Sim and been by myself. That's my choice. That's my decision. Sim, all Sim can do is say, look, I'm giving you all the information. Do you trust me? And if you trust me, follow me. Jesus says, I'm showing you how to live this life. I'm showing you how you can live a transformed life. Do you trust me? Then follow me. And if you're in trouble then let me know so then I can help you get out of trouble. But if I stay conformed to the world, then I won't get there. But here's the point. When we make Christ our compass, he transforms our mind. He transforms our mind. And look at the result in the second part of verse 2. That by testing, he says, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ooh, I wish I had more time. Because I'll, I'll just allude to this, but notice what he's saying. And I want you to hear this closely. And I, I struggled with this when I was preparing this because I, I, I wanted, what he's saying is, in order for your mind to be transformed, you have to be connected to the person of Jesus and the word of Jesus. If you try to do one without the other, you end up lost. Because if I didn't have the right terminology to, to show to Sim, I, 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 he wouldn't know what I was saying. I had to learn the language, but then I also had to stay close to the person. I had to do both. If I couldn't just go away and then be like by myself doing language, <laughs> right? Or I couldn't be up close to him and him not be able to understand what I was trying to say because I didn't listen to the words that he had given me. I need to do both. We need the person of Jesus and the word of Jesus. And look at what he says. By testing these things, you will be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Only after I spend time close with Jesus can I actually be able to understand what God's will is and why it's better than mine. That's the only way. Like, if I'm just being conformed to what everybody else tells me, of course it looks like it's terrible new advice. What do you mean, don't have sex with someone before you're married? How do you kick the tires and know that it's actually good? That's a totally different way of looking at things that we're told, right? That's crazy. That don't make sense. How do you know if you want to marry somebody unless you live with them? Although, studies have shown people who live together before they get married have a higher rate of divorce. 
That's for another conversation. That was a freebie. But this good, perfect, and this good, pleasing, and perfect, when I looked at it, I saw that there was an immediate parallel and a nod to Genesis chapter 3. It says, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, in complete opposition to what God would say would happen if they ate from the tree. This he gives an explanation. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, in light of that explanation, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband and who was with her and he ate. Do you see the parallel? What happened is that instead of being transformed by God's word, they were conformed to the word of the enemy. And the word of the enemy went completely against God's word and says, no, you ain't going to die. Everything that God said was going to happen is not really going to happen to you. In fact, God has an ulterior motive, as if God needed a, like a, like, like a competition with a human being. But that was the, the, the angle, the line. And they believed it. And it says, look at it. Look at what it says. And when she saw that it was good, someone say good, good. a delight, delight, and that it was desired to make one wise. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> that was a lot of words. It says, then she took and ate of it and gave to her husband too. Good, pleasing, and perfect. In Romans 12, too, it says that when I understand, when my mind is transformed by God, then I see that his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. When I am transformed, conformed by the word of the enemy, then I see that his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. This is the exact opposite of what Jesus does and happens when, this, when Satan tempts him and says, hey, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where did Jesus get this from? Deuteronomy 8, chapter, verse 3. The son of God himself did not just say, well, I'm Jesus. I don't need to do that. He went back to the word. And if Jesus is going to the word in order to resist the enemy, so should we. It is written, it is written, it is written. So, but that was because he had already fed on God's word. So the question is, is your spiritual diet conforming or transforming you? You are what you eat, right? You know, it's a good way to kind of see what you're feeding on. You know, that little uh, settings feature that allows you to see what your apps are that you're using on a regular basis. Just screen time, right? Sometimes it'll just give you it on Sunday. You'll be like, I didn't ask you for all that, Apple. I didn't ask you to tell me, oh, my screen time went up 15%. I'm in the middle of a pandemic. Leave me alone. Um, <laughs> but there is a, 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 a reality to the fact, and I'm not saying that your Bible app has to be eight hours and your you know, Google app has to be a, a day. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we need to be careful about our diet. Because if I want output that's going to transform me, then I can't have input that's conforming me. And I know it is in my own life, when I, I talked about 20 years, which we celebrate, but again, I'm trying to be real with you. I'm not trying to put myself out here as some like, you know, just on a pedestal. And the real backstory behind Tamika and our relationship was that we had known each other for a couple years beforehand in church, but we were always in another relationship, another broken relationship. And finally, we both 
got tired of being in bad situations. Well, actually, in my case, someone else got tired of me in the... <laughs> and I, it, but the funny thing was, while I was in that relationship, I knew that God wasn't pleased with it. But because I suppressed the truth and I wanted the person more than I wanted God, I ignored it anyway. And this was always a lesson to me in my life because had that person not broken up with me, the next weekend I would not have been free to go on a date with Tamika. God's mercy said, you are rebelling, you're, you're, you're ignoring me, and I'm going to be gracious enough to not even allow you to mess up your own life. That's God's mercy 20 years later. But here's the thing. In that relationship, not only did I have to recognize and finally come to a place, and both of us were at the same place together, I'm tired of doing it our, my own way. I'm tired of being conformed to what the world says. So we put up these very hard, like, high boundaries, because we're like, look, we know what the flesh does. It, it distorts, it confuses. So we're not going to be even alone with each other in the same room. And we dated for three years, a year long distance. And I can tell you with clarity of mind that we came into the marriage knowing that this was what God wanted because there was no other baggage or things tying, pulling at us, confusing us like had been in the past. And I share that because I want to give you encouragement because there was all, a whole lot of doing it the wrong way. And some of y'all, I hesitated sharing this because people are like, yo, 20 years. This is what I used to think when I used to hear people talk like this. You ever look at a, a picture of an older person and be surprised that they were once young? <laughs> like, there's a part of us that begins to think that, like, they just kind of came out the womb, like, 50 or, like, 60, right? And you're like, wow, Grandma, you look good back then. And you're, like, surprised. And there's this part of us that we almost forget that, like, an older person is just a younger person who's been around longer. That's like, like we're the same type of people, like that we have the same desires and motives and, and, and temptations. And so when I share these stories, I, somebody might want to dismiss it like, yeah, but you ain't around right now. You ain't single in 2021. I'm like, yeah, but I was in 1996 and, you know, 2000 and this people are people. They're like, mm-mm. All right, so stop fighting. Here's the point. When we do things God's way, he opens up doors that we never thought we, that were open. <laughs> Sometimes that we didn't even know we needed. <sighs> Lastly, when we transform our minds, when our minds are transformed, we stay in our lane. When our minds are transformed, we stay in our lane. Look at what Paul says in verse 4 and 5. As, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have, all have the same function. So we... Though many are one body in Christ and individual, individually members of one another. What Paul is getting at here is not only is this conform versus transform important in terms of your own personal process, but it has to happen in the context of the body. Somebody say the body. I'm almost done. Just stick, stick with me. And we saw this, we're seeing, we're watching this play itself out on a global stage right now. If the Olympics are going on. And the Olympics, it's funny, because like, we basically have, a, I think, a pretty toxic relationship with like Olympic athletes. If it's not basketball, then we're like, 
I'm going to act like you don't exist for three and a half years. And then on that fourth year for like two weeks, you got my attention. And now I'm like, yo, I'm right. And I'm walking around with a sense of pride when you win. And I'm mad when you lose, right? It's a pretty dysfunctional relationship. But nonetheless, when you think about it, for most athletes who participate in the Olympics, this two-week window is what they prepare their entire lives for. Many of them can only participate in one if you're lucky or good or really, you know, maybe two. That's about it. And think about that. Every waking moment, moving to another part of the country, sometimes another part of the world, to just submitting your body to unspeakable types of just strain in order for you to get to a place where for one I was watching the, the uh, 100 meters uh, this morning, men's final. And it's like 10 seconds or less. That's, a, that's it. You're doing all that for 10 seconds. And in the midst of that, we saw someone who was considered coming into it the greatest gymnast of all time, and Simone Biles, and on this stage, in which would cement her legacy, she does moves that other people don't even, they think it's dangerous to try. They'll actually punish her for trying it because other people are like, yo, that's going to hurt somebody. <laughs> and in the midst of this moment of glory, she decides to withdraw from some competitions for her mental health. And this is an astonishing moment, right? There's a lot of different realities and takes to that. But the thing that's so interesting is there was some aspect of things called the twisties, where it's basically like gymnast vertigo, I call it, where you just don't really know where your body is in relationship to space. And she was like, yo, this is probably not safe. But I don't want to do, hurt my team. I don't want to hurt my team's chances. So even though I might be able to get through this thing, I might not. And I'd rather let them step up and me step back, even though I'm considered to be the greatest. And the amazing thing is, she didn't just leave. Like, she could have just been like, I'm, this is a disgrace. People are just attacking me. She stayed and coached them. And in fact, led to Sunisa Lee's, or Suni Lee's, all-around gymnastic gold. The one that Simone Biles was the absolute favorite for, Sunisa Lee becomes the first Hmong American to win a gold medal in the all-around. And the thing that's so amazing to me is that when you hear the rest of the team talk, they don't talk like people who are not part of the team talk about Simone Biles and her, her, her struggle and, and her decision. They are completely in awe of her and inspired, and they say she is what made, why we're here. Not just because she scores a lot of points, but because of her belief in us. Why am I bringing this up? Because when our minds are transformed, we stay with the team even when we're injured. This is a time period where some of us are injured. Some of us are experiencing that sense of mental health challenges, spiritual health challenges. You feel like you're in the dark night of your soul. Don't quit on the team. The team needs you. The team is the church, and, and we're here. And, and the other thing that fascinates me, there's a, bit, a whole lot of people who would be salty, very salty, tray salty, to see somebody else get the gold on your team that you were expected to get. But instead, she cheered. She was the biggest cheerleader. And see, this is the thing. When we conform to society, I'm jealous of that. But when I'm transformed, I get a shared sense of joy. And that's, and that's the difference between what it looks like to be conformed versus transformed. When I'm conformed, I look at this as a zero-sum game. Your win is my loss. 
But when I see what Christ did on the cross, when I see that he ultimately is the one who is the champion because he sacrificed himself for me, then what that does is it gives me a different perspective. And now I can have the perspective he had in Philippians 2 where it says, though he was equal with God, he did not think equality as something to be held onto, but he humbled himself and became a servant and became obedient to, to death, even death on the cross. That's what it looks like to be transformed. And so this season, you might be in a challenging time like I am, and it might be tough to do basic things like open up your Bible or pray or come to church or watch online, and I, and I get that, and that's real. But you know what else is real and even more real? A view of God's mercies. What he's already done in the rear view of your life, what he's doing currently, what he spared you from, including ourselves, and what he's going to do in and through you. In view of God's mercies, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy to God, which is your reasonable act of service, your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then you will know what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your mercies, which are new every morning, for your mercies, which look past our faults, even our flaws, even our suppressing of the truth that we may have participated in today. We ask that you help us to live in light of your mercy and offer ourselves as a sacrifice, not to be acceptable to you, but because you have already accepted us. Help transform my mind. Not just today, but tomorrow and until we see you in glory. In Christ's name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.